0: And we would invite any children here, kindergarten to second grade, to be dismissed to Children's Church, which they can find through the door over here by the piano. Any kindergartners to second grade. And would the rest of you open up a Bible to Luke chapter 5. This morning we're studying verses 27 to 32. Luke chapter 5, verses 27 to 32. If you're using a pew Bible, uh, I believe that's found on page 10. Nineteen, ten nineteen in the Pew Bible, Luke Chapter Five, verses twenty seven to thirty two. Let me read the text. After this. Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we do praise you because you are the light of the world who, as we just sang, stepped into our darkness, stepped into the darkness of this world. Lord Jesus, you came to bring people who are far from God close to God through the forgiveness of their sins. We love you, Jesus, and we thank you that your light is shown in our hearts, that in your mercy you chose us before the foundation of the world to receive salvation, that you opened our hearts at the right time and showed us the light of the gospel, that you've done a work in our hearts, Lord. And yet, Lord, we recognize that there is still much darkness in the world. We think of uh, places in the world today where their gospel is not heard, where people cannot just walk down the street and walk into a church and hear the gospel proclaimed, where there are not books and radios, uh, stations available to listen to and read. And Lord, we we thank you for the blessings you've given us here. Lord, we think of uh, the country of Iraq, where we're so invested as a nation right now, and Lord, we we pray for them as they approach elections that there might be peace, that you might continue to allow, uh, in your mercy, freedom to move forward there despite the opposition of some who are bent on hatred and destruction. Lord, we do pray that you'd bless our troops this holiday season, take care of them overseas. Lord, we pray for um, our missionaries around the world who are in uh, different countries seeking to spread the good news. Uh, We pray, Lord, for uh, the Donaldsons down in Peru, who are missionaries of the week this week. Lord, we pray that you bless their efforts, that you might raise up others to take their place, that the work of the church in Peru might continue. Lord, we do pray for our own nation. Our nation is as needy for your spirit and your work as any other nation. Lord, we think of the blessings you've given us, the prosperity, the peace, the technology, the the stability in America. And yet, Lord, uh, we're not honoring you with all of that. We, uh, we honor ourselves. We live for comfort. And Lord, you're further and further pushed to the margins of um, public discourse. And Lord, this is not how it always was. So we pray for a revival here in our nation. We pray for this nation to return to uh, its moorings and to its roots. Lord, we pray for the church, that the church would be purified and holy. Lord, we pray for this church, for South Shore Baptist Church, that you might unify this church, that above all else we would be marked by love that people would say of us that we love one another deeply and that people of all different walks of life seem to come together in this church and love each other, even though they're from different socioeconomic strata and different races and different backgrounds and different politics. Lord, we thank you that we're united in Jesus and in the Holy Spirit. Lord, we pray that this would be a church that's zealously committed to the truth of the Bible, that we would cling to your Bible uh, as life itself and that we would proclaim your Bible and teach it fearlessly and live it zealously. Lord, I do pray that you'd give us compassion for those who don't know Jesus, that we would be a church that has an outward focus into the community, that we would not be uh, withdrawn into ourselves, that we would not see the church as about meeting our needs, but about meeting the needs of others around us. Lord, give us a heart for the poor. Give us a heart for those who are broken and hurting around us. Lord, give us a heart for those who uh, seem to be far from the love of Christ and who just have not heard or don't have as much access to the gospel. And so, Lord, be with us now as we open up the Bible, because we believe it is the very Word of God. We believe that you speak uniquely through your Word. Speak to our hearts now through the Holy Spirit, and we pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. I started uh, attending South Shore Baptist Church in uh, 19... 93, I had just become a seminary student at Gordon-Conwell Seminary, and my wife and I would come down here on the weekends, it was about an hour drive, and and we'd come down here to worship and just get to know the church. My my wife's family attends here, so it was kind of a nice way to connect with the family as well and uh, all be together. I remember one time early on there, I was driving down, and um, we pulled in the parking lot one Sunday morning. And there were all these cars there that typically weren't there. I and mean, these were kind of beat-up, clunker cars. All They're sort of all lined up in a row. A lot of these old uh, VW vans, do you remember these things from kind of the, the hippie days? And they're all kind of lined up. And, and then there's people kind of pouring out of these cars. And their hair was all nappy. They'd obviously slept in the car that night. You know, bloodshot-eyed, maybe hungover. You know, they're smoking a butt. They got... You know, tie-dyes on, and, and it's like, who? You know, where do these people land from? We found out that there was a Grateful Dead concert in the area, so they were either—I don't know if they were coming, they're a bunch of Deadheads and traveling around. They either coming from it or going to it. We don't know which, but uh, apparently they just need a place to stay for the night, so they stopped in our parking lot and decided to make that their camp or whatever. uh, And and it was such an interesting juxtaposition to see all those folks sort of rolling out of their cars, and at the same time, the, you know, South Shore Baptist Church in Hingham, you know, Lovey, who are those people, you know, sort of (laughs) coming out of their cars. And here are these people from very different walks of life, you know, face to face. It's it's sort of an interesting uh, positioning of things together, of opposites. You you know, societies, as we talked about last Sunday, if you were here, societies tend to have concentric circles of influence and importance. In any group of people, you put them together and you'll eventually find some people who are kind of in the center, who make the decisions or have the influence. And then there's other people as you move out who have less until you finally get to the fringes. Whether it's very explicit, like in India, we have the caste system where you know the Brahmins in the middle, and then the warlords, and then you have these different layers, five layers, until you finally get to the... The um, untouchables who are on the fringes. Or like we talked about last Sunday, maybe it's in high school where there's the cool kids, maybe they're the jocks and the preppy kids in the center, then you move out to all the freaks where I tended to exist. When I was in high school, out there at the the fringes of the social uh, food chain. But but there's always these these series of circles and lines. And certainly that Sunday was just one of those days when the lines and the circles were like, boom, right in your face. Here was your kind of typical Hingham South Shore Baptist crowd at the time, and then there's these other people who are very much more at the fringe of the social order, and eh, partially their own choice. That's part of the the whole deadhead kind of subculture thing. But as we've been studying the life of Jesus the last few Sundays, one of the themes that's come through is that Jesus has come to proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God to the people at the fringes of the culture. Two weeks ago, remember, it was the leper who was cleansed. Last week, it was the paralytic. And this week, it's it's a tax collector. And so Jesus, who at this time in his ministry, was very much at the center of things. People were coming to him. Things were gathering around him. People wanted to talk to him. People were investigating him. And yet, Jesus seems to cut through all of the social picket lines. He, He hops all these fences that you're not supposed to cross. And he finds himself proclaiming his message of forgiveness and reconciliation with God to those who are at the the furthest fringes of society. He, He seems to just make a beeline to those places. And today, he makes a beeline to a tax collector. If you look at verse 27, it says, After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him, and Levi got up and left everything. And followed him. Well, that's the story. It's kind of short, s- simple. In fact, you could probably fit that story on a fortune cookie. You know, it's just—it's so short. It's like, well, you, and it's the kind of story you just read right over. Here's this guy. Jesus walks up, follow me. He follows him. And Levi, if you're not aware, is, is another name he has. Is Matthew. This is actually the Apostle Matthew who writes the Gospel of Matthew. But this is how he started. He's this tax collector, and, and we would probably just kind of read right through it. But you have to understand that if you were a person in the first century, and you were reading this story, you would not just go whoop right through it. You would have went, what? You know, and your jaw would hit the floor, and your head would have spun around twice, and you would have been like, ah, oh, a tax collector? No way! You have to understand, people in those days hated, despised, loathed tax collectors. And not like today. I mean, no one likes taxes today. I mean, if you're at, a, but, but you know, even if you're at a Christmas party, you're like, hi, I don't, you know, what do you do for a living? And the guy said, well, I, I work for the IRS. I mean, you know, y- you might make a wisecrack or something and be like, oh, but you know, you'd have a civil conversation. But back then, if you said, oh, you know, what do you do? I'm a tax collector. It'd be like, whoop. And it, I mean, these people were social pariahs. The the Jews, you read the rabbinic literature, they would uh, lump tax collectors in with prostitutes. If you uh, read the Greco Roman literature, they lumped tax collectors in with robbers, thieves, and beggars. So so they, you know, everybody, Greeks, Jews, everyone was like, ew, when it came to tax collectors. In fact, you know, look at verse 30. Do you see that? The Pharisees said, "Uh, Why do you eat and drink with Tax collectors and sinners. It's kind of like a phrase. It's like a little thing people say, tax collectors and sinners. So in other words, among the people who are notoriously sinful, among those Jewish people who had no desire to keep God's laws, tax collectors are so notorious themselves that they stand out and are put like at the front of the expression. So it's, it's not like sinners and, you know, tax collectors. It's like tax collectors Oh yeah, and other sinners too. That's just how despised and despicable these people were. And there's a reason why people hated tax collectors It's because they were scum you have to understand these were bad people okay they were yucky they made their money off of other poor people and, and they abused a system of, of tax farming and they grew rich at the power of the, with the power of Rome behind them they grew rich off their fellow Jews I mean, it was bad um, typically, this is how it worked: that There would be these tax stations set up all around. And they would typically be set up at major commerce points. Um, a dock by the lake. Or a city gate where goods had to come in and out. Or maybe a major crossroads where trade caravans had to come through. And, and so there would be these tax booths so that anytime you wanted to transport any goods anywhere, and they had it figured out, you were going to go through the tax booths. A- and to get one of these jobs, these tax collectors, they would bid on it. they say, okay, I want that one there, uh, you know, that tax booth at the city gate. So, so they'd have a bidding war, and the person who could bid the highest would get it. So now you can see this guy's financially motivated to make back the money that he had to pay up front to get the job. And so, so what he'd do is, as people would come through, uh, he, he would tax them. And was there a set rate of taxation? Yeah, there was. It was you know, somewhere between 2 and 5%. But here's the trick. 2 or 5% of What? Well, of the value of the goods. And who determines right there on the spot the value of the goods? The tax collector. So Farmer Fred, who's a subsistence farmer, and who barely keeps his family fed, and is, is somehow just surviving this year, because last year there was a bad drought, and they have a few bushels of wheat left over, he's bringing it into town, and he comes to Levi's tax booth, and Levi says, Okay, it's gonna be a 4% tax, and your wheat is worth X. And Farmer Fred says, what? Do you think that's worth that much? And he's like, hmm. You know, and he nods, and there's the Roman guard standing there. Move along, peasant. And so, you know, this guy has to cough up whatever Farmer Fred says, or whatever Levi says. And then, if Farmer Fred is unfortunate enough to have to go through two checkpoints or three checkpoints, he goes through the same rigmarole again. So now you can see why people hated these, these tax collectors, because they were just literally legalized highwaymen. You know, you'd know, you bring your goods along, and this guy would stop and say, give me your money, and then you move on. And so they're just robbers, sort of legalized by the Roman government. They were not only turncoats to the Gentiles, but then they bilked their own people through this corrupt taxation system. So, So when you read there, verse 27, after this Jesus went out and saw a tax collector, you have to put some modern moral category in there that would evoke a similar kind of feeling in you. You have to read, then, after this Jesus went out and saw a pimp. After this Jesus went out and saw a drug dealer. After this Jesus went out and saw a registered sex offender. You know, put something in there that just make you go, no, mmm, mm, and that's how they felt about this kind of person. And what's remarkable is that Jesus comes to him and what does he say? Follow me. And Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. Jesus came in order to go to those at the fringe of society, whether because of a health problem they're at the fringe, or whether it's because of their own stupid choices. But for whatever reason, they're at the fringe. And Jesus went to proclaim the good news of salvation and take his stand there among them and preach the gospel. And he came to Levi Follow me. Which just had to have been a shock to everybody. why are you even talking to this criminal? (laughs) Follow me. And Levi got up, left everything, and followed Jesus. And I love that imagery of following. You know, it's such a great picture of what it means to be a Christian. In fact, I think, you know, if I had to choose language to best describe to someone my religion, probably the best language I could come up with is, I'm a follower of Jesus. I think that in some ways that's the best. You know, you know, what else are you going to say? Am I going to say I'm a Christian? Well, I am a Christian, but I don't know. Christian's kind of vague, isn't it? Because lots of people think they're Christians. And it's like, well, if you grew up in America and you're not a Muslim or a Buddhist, well, I guess I'm a Christian. You know, so sort of everybody's a Christian. At least everyone thinks they are. But maybe it's not a Christian in the way the Bible uses the term, and certainly not in a following Jesus kind of way. So I just kind of find the Christian label. It's kind of political, too. People talk about the, Christ, the Christian rider, You know, so it's one of these labels that just... I wonder how much clarity it really brings to a conversation. Or maybe I could say, uh, I'm a believer. That's another phrase. I believe in Jesus. And well, I mean, that's good, too, but it's, it's a little intellectual, right? It, it sort of lands on simply a set of truths to be believed or a point in time in my life when I came to believe in Jesus. But, you know, it's, it's a little bit stale, Uh, I could say my denomination, I'm a Baptist. But, I mean, even though I I believe the theology that would lead me to be a Baptist, I I wouldn't say that's the major thing about me. It's not where I want to put the the major emphasis when I'm describing myself religiously. And then you come to this idea of following. And and there's something just kind of dynamic and alive about it. I'm a follower of Jesus. It it just implies so much. I mean, think about everything that 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 phrase entails. Following, first of all, implies that you've left something behind. That you were somewhere and you're not there anymore. It's so like, I, like Levi, I got up, I left everything to follow. And in theolo- theological terms, we call this repentance. It's turning away from sin. Like Levi, he just had to get up and leave that whole stinking, slimy business that he was in. That's what God was calling him to do. So he got up and left. Levi, where are you going, man? We've got all these camels here. We have to... You know, we've got to assess all of his goods. Hey, we're busy. You know, hey, this is peak hour. Take our lunch break in, in 25 minutes. We've we got to process all these donkeys and all these goods. And we're going to make some serious money here. Sorry, guys. I, I have to go. Where are you going? I, I, I'm going with him. And, and that's it. And, and so there has to be a leaving behind. And when you come to Christ, when you, just, when you become a follower of Jesus, we have to leave things. Sometimes it's a relationship we have to leave. It's just not right. Sometimes we have to leave, um, sometimes a job. Maybe there is a profession that you're in that as you become a believer, you're like, this isn't where God wants me. And so he'll lead you in a journey toward another kind of career and direction. That happens sometimes. Uh, sometimes we have. To, certainly we have to leave behind sin. Whatever sin is in our life, that's the fundamental concept of repentance, is turning away from sin and turning toward Jesus. It, it, but I, I really want to emphasize that, because I think sometimes we try to make salvation and Christianity seem so easy. We, we try to oversell it. So it's like, oh look, it's, it's easy to become a Christian. Just pray this prayer. You pray the prayer, good. You're a Christian. Because I heard you pray that prayer. Like, well, I don't know. You prayed a prayer. You know, or walk down the aisle at the altar call. Or raise your hand. You know, does that make you a Christian? Well, I, I don't know. It might be or it might not. You know, the, the way you know if someone's a believer is you see the, the change in their life over time. Anyone could say they prayed a prayer. But if there's no fruit in someone's life over time, well, I don't know about that little, little commitment they made way back when. Because it's, it's leaving behind something. There has to be a cut off of the old life. Not that we become perfect when we become Christians by any stretch of the mind. But, but we just, we have to repent. We have to turn away. And we need to remind people of that. Because being a disciple of Jesus is costly. It's costly. It's not cheap and easy. Is it worth it? Yes. <laughs> it's worth it. But it is costly. And so we have to leave. That's That's following. Following also implies not only leaving, but it implies going somewhere new. Uh, And and it's it's a life of faith. So that first part is repentance, the second part is faith. And faith is not just when you become a Christian you have faith, but the whole Christian life is about faith. It's a constant walk of faith. And Jesus says, follow me. Where are we going? Follow me. Yeah, but where? Follow me. Okay, okay, okay. (laughs) And we start following and... And then it's like, alright God, I've been following you for three years now, or five years, or ten years, so so why is my kid behaving this way? Or why is my kid sick? Or why is my job falling apart? Or why is my marriage falling apart? Or why, 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 why? And the only answer he keeps giving us is I love you, just trust me, follow me. Follow me. Okay. You know, are we there yet? <laughs> no. Follow me. And, and the Christian life is not a, a straight line between when I become a Christian and eternal life. It's, it's like, yeah, it's when you become a Christian eternal life, but the path is kind of like, you know. And it goes like this, it goes like that. It's like Israel in the desert going to the promised land. They're all over the place. And he leads us in all these bizarre paths because he, he wants us to follow him. It's not a straight line. It's more like a roller coaster is what it's like being a Christian, frankly. You know, it's like buckle in. You're now following Jesus. But, but it's great. It's an adventure. Following Christ is an adventure of a lifetime. And so we leave behind that staid old little world where Jeremy felt like he was in charge, where everything was working like clockwork and everything was fine, and I followed Jesus, and now it's like, put on a helmet because we are going for a ride. It's going to be wild, but it's going to be good. So, so there's a sense of adventure, of faith to it. And then I think a third part of following is not only repentance and faith, but, but then transformation. That as I follow Jesus, I will become a different person over time. Journeys have a way of doing that to you. Going on a trip, going abroad, living abroad for a year and coming back, you're changed, you're different. And going on a journey with Jesus, you're different. When When you follow him, he transforms you. It's like Levi. Look at our story here. Levi's what? He's the tax collector. And who does Levi become? The Apostle Matthew, who writes the first book of the New Testament. Like, how do you... You know, how do you go from there to there? It's easy. Jesus does it all the time for people. He takes Saul and he turns him into Paul. He takes Peter the fisherman and turns him into the rock upon which Christ builds his church. And Jesus takes people like this all the time. He takes uh, John Newton, who was a slave trader and a total profligate, and turns him into a Puritan pastor who writes Amazing Grace, that song that we all love. And Jesus does that. He transforms lives. That's what it means to follow Christ. And so when he says, follow me, this is loaded. It's loaded with all the good stuff. Is Christ? Do you hear Christ sometimes saying that to you? Follow me. You have to leave everything and follow him. And he'll change your life as you repent of your sin and put your faith completely in him. And he'll transform you into someone that you never would have even imagined you would have become. Because Jesus came to bring the gospel of hope and of salvation and forgiveness and transformation to the people furthest from the kingdom of God. He came with a message for the outsiders. But notice in verses 29 and 32, the focus shifts in the story. And now there's a message for the insiders. Isn't that interesting? So we've got a message for the outsiders, which is follow me to the center. Not necessarily the center of social life, but to the center of a life with God. But now there's a message for the insiders. And, you know, I think the message for the insiders is actually quite the same message as it is for the outsiders. For the outsiders, the message is, follow me. And for the insiders, the message is, follow me, as I go back out to the outside. So Jesus is calling outsiders in and he's sending insiders out. And he turns you inside out. That's how it is following Jesus. He he takes you from sin into a relationship with God and then in that relationship with God sends us back out to serve others. So there's this, this wonderful flow and dynamic of following Jesus Christ. Um, look at look at the second part of this. Here's the message to us insiders. There's a message for the deadheads in the parking lot, which is follow me. And there's a message for the South Shore Baptist church people, which is follow me. Verse 29. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house. And a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. Isn't that a great story? I thought <laughs> He comes a follower of Jesus. What does he do? He just throws a huge party. Party of Levi's! You know. Who's going to be there? I don't know. Some guy he met. Oh, dude, it doesn't matter. Levi throws great parties. Let's go. And so all, all the creepy crawlies start coming out from under their rocks. You know? All the bad people who start coming out from all their little dens and their holes and back alleys. It, it, and there's this big collection of all the, the yucky people. I mean, if you could just bring the cops in right there, you'd have them all in one place all the gangsters and all the you know hoodlums and yucky people are there and they're having a big party and Jesus is eating with them and this would have been a big deal because eating with people in those days was more than just let's have some food together in fact it still is in the middle east in the middle east uh, culture to sit down and eat with somebody is to it's kind of like you're making a commitment a friendship commitment to them and so you, you now have a bond. It's like, hey, well, you can't hurt me because we've eaten together. We're friends now. We, ha- we have a level of intimacy together. So this is a really big deal. And so, verse thirty, when the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, who belonged to their sect, complained to his disciples, then they complained to the disciples, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? So now there's the Pharisees and. We talked about tax collectors. We probably talked about Pharisees. And, and I want to talk about the Pharisees because I think often when we who've read the Gospels many times hit the word Pharisees, we just kind of go, oh yeah, Pharisees. <laughs> you know, what a bunch of you know, legalistic religious freaks. Yeah, yeah, the Pharisees. We all know they're bad. But it's like, no, no, no stop for a minute. I, I think we kind of give the Pharisees a hard time times. I, I think we need to have a little more sympathy with the Pharisees. You know, who were the Pharisees? They were a religious order... Within Judaism. In fact, they were the largest religious order of their day. They had people from all walks of life. They had regular farmers all the way up to the scribes and the teachers of the law. So all kinds of people were Pharisees. It cut through all kinds of levels of society. And Pharisees were basically people who their primary impulse was, we really, really want to obey God's law. That was their thing. What's wrong with that? I mean, that's good, isn't it? Shouldn't we obey God's law? And so the Pharisees, they look back on the history of Israel. They said, huh, check this out. Israel disobeys God. Israel gets punished. Israel disobeys God again. Israel gets punished again. Huh, I think I'm seeing a pattern. And so the Pharisees said, I have an idea. Let's try to obey God's law. Oh, what a concept. So so, so they, they become these people who are obsessed with keeping the law of God because they've seen... That God wants his law obeyed, which makes total sense. And and so they not only have the law of Moses, but they also had this whole uh, body of oral tradition of of teaching that's uh, known as the halakha. And they had the halakha around it. And, And what it really was was a series of instructions from different rabbis commenting on the law of Moses. So, you know, Ten Commandments. Honor the Sabbath day, keep it holy. Fine. What does that mean? Well, Rabbi so-and-so says that you should not do this on the Sabbath. And Rabbi X says this, and Rabbi Y says this. So they had all these pronouncements by the rabbis about how to go about keeping the law. And so that was their whole thing. Let's try to keep the law. And then there are these people who are Jews, like tax collectors and sinners, who didn't give a, you know, care at all in the world about the law. And so they say, well, let's not touch them. They're ceremonially unclean. They're, they're bad people. And so they tried to keep a distance from those bad people because they didn't want to become contaminated by their, their uncleanness and their sinfulness. So, you know, I, I say all that, just, you know, not, not to give you a history lecture here, but, but I just, I think we need to have a little more sympathy to the Pharisees because I suspect that if many of us lived back in those days, we would have been Pharisees. <laughs> I think I would have been a Pharisee. I was talking to Mark Jennings, who preached here this summer, uh, yesterday on the phone, and he and I were talking about this text, and He's like, what you're preaching on? So I told him, and, and he said, man, I'm sure if I lived back in those days, I would have been a Pharisee. i like, yeah, I think I would have been too. You know, like, I'm trying to do the right thing here. So why are you eating with those people? Notice Jesus' response. Verse 31. Jesus answered them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. And I want to be really clear about this because I'm afraid that we could easily make a mistake in reading this verse. We we could sort of mistakenly read this verse through the American secular lens and mistakenly think that Jesus here is talking about tolerance. This is not about tolerance. We could mistakenly think that Jesus here is talking about non-judgmentalism. This is not about non-judgmentalism. You know, it's it's not like Jesus was saying, hey, look, Pharisees, they're okay, you're okay, we're all okay, let's not judge each other. No, no, he didn't say that. Notice he does judge these people. He's agreeing with the Pharisees that these are bad people. (laughs) He calls them sick. He calls them sinners. He says that, yeah, they do need to repent. So he's totally agreeing with the Pharisees that these people are not walking in God's ways. The Pharisees understand that. What they misunderstand is the mission and purpose of Jesus. Which was to save that which was lost and broken. That's the misunderstanding. In other words, this is not, the Jesus comments here are not a commentary about tolerance. They're a commentary about grace, which is completely different. Grace means I don't deserve it, I am a sinner, but in mercy, in grace, God reaches down to save that which does not deserve to be saved. That's the message of the gospel. And I bet if we're honest with ourselves, there's a little bit of Pharisee in all of us. (laughs) Come on, for those of you who are kind of on the in, if you are a Christian, and you're really honest with your heart, aren't there just some kinds of people that it's hard for you to think about hanging out with, crossing the line to? Um, Maybe, I mean, could you picture yourself going out and hanging out with some people you met in a gay bar? You're like, oh, no, no. Well, you know. Could you imagine yourself hanging out with uh, a book club of people who are almost all politically liberal? Or almost all politically conservative? Could you uh, imagine yourself, if you had a Bible study with people mostly from Hingham and Cohasset, inviting someone from Weymouth to come? (laughs) Or if you're in a Bible study with mostly people from Weymouth and Hull, could you imagine inviting someone from Cohasset to come? (laughs) You know, all these lines we have and, and distinctions. Uh, maybe it's just good old-fashioned racism. Maybe you just don't like black people. Maybe you don't like white people or Latinos or Asians. Maybe they're just certain types of people because the way you grew up and the way your family talked about them, that you're just like, hmm, no. All kinds of things that we draw lines around us and we say, well, I can't go there. And, And I think this is a call to the church and a call to us as individuals to be willing to cross whatever lines are there in our minds and our hearts and to say, you know, Christ is calling us as a church to reach out to those who don't have the gospel. And whatever lines those are really don't matter to Jesus, so I guess they don't matter to me. And being willing to just relate to people as people who need the gospel. Um, and, And that takes a kind of boldness and a kind of faith that sometimes I think we lack. You know, and I think sometimes our not reaching out to people, it's not even about different kinds of prejudice. It's just about we become saturated with Christian relationships to such an extent that we don't even have significant friendships with people outside of the kingdom of God. I mean, that's my problem, I think. You know, as I I was studying this text, I was just convicted about that. I'm like, how many significant friendships and relationships do I have with people who don't know Christ? I was like, "Uh, hmm, well, there's no, actually no. So, uh, yeah, I I couldn't think of any. (laughs) I mean, I know people, but do I really know people? You know, my life is just saturated with Christians, which is wonderful. And it's kind of a natural process. You become a Christian. You're like Levi. All you know is people who are not related to Jesus. But then you join a church, which is good. And then you get into the church and you join a Bible study, which is good. And then in the Bible study, you join another Bible study, an accountability group, which is good. And then you start serving in a ministry, in another ministry. And then and you make more and more friends. The next thing you know, 20 years later, you're just kind of like in the church ghetto. And, and you don't know anybody outside of the church and outside of Christ, you don't have any significant relationships. And that's sort of how I find myself, especially as a pastor, where I'm just kind of saturated with, with church life. And so it's not anything intentional. It just kind of happens sort of gradually. And, and so there's a need sometimes to cut some things out of our lives so that we can have relationships with people. It, maybe some of us need to just cut back a little. Instead of going to three Bible studies a week, you know, cut down to two or, or one. Or instead of you know going and serving in five ministries, maybe I need to cut back to two so that I have some more time, not just for my family, but also to join whatever, a school committee or, or join some places where I'm just a part of the community to have some balance in our lives. Certainly some people need to get more in to the body of Christ and relations, but I think some of us need to get out more. And so we need the in and the outward movement um, because Christ came to reach those at the fringes and... Uh, and we need to be there. You know, it's one of the reasons I, I think that we've kind of scaled back Christmas at Sasha Baptist Church. Uh, you, you know, if, if maybe you notice, our main Christmas thing we do now is Christmas Eve services. We, you know, we used to do a lot more at big events and things. And not if there's anything wrong with those things. They're wonderful. You know, we do a big choir night and a big kids program night and a big this night. But part of that is it's like it's got so busy. So the December here in the church is like constantly running to one church event after another church event. You know, not that any of those things are bad, but then you get done with the season, and it's sort of like we missed the point of Jesus coming, which was he came to go out among people, and and we are so busy doing events here, and we invited people in, and that's good. But, but, you know, maybe now we can take some of that free time, and if your friend down the street says, hey, come to my Christmas party, you know, you're like, I can come, because I have free time, and I'm going to go intentionally into those neighborhood parties. And and maybe you only stay for the first half hour, because after that everyone's drunk, and what's the point, but Whatever. You're making an effort, and you're making. Or I was at a Christmas party last night, and it was a guy from the church. He invited some people from the church, and then he invited some of his neighbors, not from the church. It was cool just to kind of see the, you know, happening, and it was like, oh, you Christians, it's not so bad. Oh, that's your pastor? Wow. Like, I, gee, I didn't even think he was a, a pastor, but you know, well, maybe I'll come to your church anyway, despite him. You know, whatever. So. It just is kind of like, you know, intermingling. It's a wonderful thing. But we need to find ways intentionally to put ourselves into relationships and real friendships. Not, Not just like I'm just trying to convert people, but actual friendships with people who don't know the Lord. And for some of you, you're there all the time and you're just trying to get away from it, trying to get some more Christians in your life. For other of us, I think we're going the other direction too. And sometimes the church does get it right. Sometimes the church really does reach out. And uh, that one day when the deadheads were here, I have to say by God's grace, South Shore Baptist Church got it right. It was awesome. The church service ended, the first service, and then by the time the first service was over, everyone figured out why they were out there. You know how gossip spreads around a church? Just like, you know, by the end of the service, everyone knows. oh, this is the deadheads. So like after the service, everyone goes down and they're getting coffee and people from our church just start going out in the parking lot with coffee, like, hey, how are you doing? You guys a good night's sleep? You need some coffee? You need a bathroom? You want to come in? You want to go to a church service? It was great. I was like, yes. the church. You know, when the church works the way it's supposed to work, it's so beautiful. And, and so the, some people started coming in, and, and a couple of people came to a worship service. And, you know, it was great. Just like, hey, this is the church being the church, reaching out and loving people and inviting them in. And it, it, One of the memories I have that's very clear in my mind is one particular gentleman in our church who I don't want to embarrass so I'll just call him Herb Hess. Uh, and, you know, I, I wouldn't want a you know, false name here. Uh, and Herb is um, Herb's, uh, he's a great guy. He's one of our elders. He's a very godly man. He's, you know, one of those guys that as a young Christian you're like, okay, when I grow up someday I want to be like spiritually like Herb Hess. I want to have his maturity and depth and and stability. He's a wonderful man. Uh, but, you know, if, if you don't know Herb, Herb is sort of, how do I describe Herb? He's kind of the... Opposite of a deadhead. Right? A very Main Street Hingham. Uh, financial guy, conservative, thoughtful, logical. Uh, a little bit starchy, you know, but just a, a really nice guy. I appreciate Herb. And, and, and it was really cool seeing Herb there. And looking over as a young Christian. And there at the coffee table, there's a couple of these deadheads. And Herb, with a cup of coffee, you know, connected in with them, listening to them. And just talking to them. And you know, you, you see something like that as, as a kid in seminary or whatever, and you're like, wow, there's hope. That it can happen. The church can be the church. And It just gives you such encouragement to see that kind of that connection. And, and you know then that Christ is pleased. In fact, if you listen carefully, you can almost hear the heartbeat of Jesus in moments like that. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I want to thank you that you came to seek and save those who are lost. Because if you didn't, Jesus, I would still be lost. I thank you, Jesus, that you came to reach out to those who are far away. And I thank you if there's anyone here who doesn't know you, God, and wants to know what it means to live in a relationship with a living God, I pray, Jesus, that you would just show yourself to them. I pray that they would hear in their hearts the voice of God saying, follow me that they would repent and turn to Jesus in faith and begin that incredible journey of faith and life with Christ. And Lord, I pray for those of us who are on the inside that we would continue to have the heart of Jesus and be willing to follow him back out to the margins. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would give us um, a fearlessness about crossing social boundaries and, and help us to see past all of those constructs that our culture puts on us and help us to see with the kingdom of God in its lenses and to see people in need of Jesus, and that's it. Not worry about what they look like, or where they're from, or what their background is, or how much money they make. And Lord, we pray in our church here at South Shore Baptist, that through your Holy Spirit, you would just ride roughshod over all the stupid little boundaries that divide us. That you would make us a church of people from all over the South Shore, who are just united in a supernatural love for one another, that comes from the Holy Spirit, and not because of, a similar socioeconomic status or educational background or anything like that. Help us to be united in Christ. And let that love for one another just be a beacon that would draw all kinds of people in as they come in and we go out and they come in and we go out. We pray this in the name of our Savior.